Good morning. Why can you only trust a one-armed fisherman? Every fish is this long. What do you call a fish with no eyes? A fish. You'll get it later, Randy. You'll get it. Yeah, all right. <clears throat> what, do you, what do you call a fish with no legs? A fish. Yeah, just a fish. All right. I like to listen to music when I go fishing. Something really catchy. <clears throat> All day. It's enough. It's enough. It's enough fish, fish jokes. We're going to scale back on those. Um, that, one's, that one's really cringeworthy. Uh, yeah. Uh, so if you've been watching online or if you've been here, you know, we've been working through the parables of Jesus and... Uh, you know, we get parables about wheat, we get parables about sheep. I don't know anything about farming. Like, so the farming parables, like, phew, I don't get any of it. The, the sheep tending, the whole shepherding, like, phew, I don't know anything about sheep. Uh, but today we get fish. I know a little something about fish, so I'm, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this. Um, anybody here fish? Grow up fishing? Have you? What's the biggest fish you ever caught? Biggest fish. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Biggest fish you ever caught. What is it? What do you got? Amberjack. Yeah, how big was it? Big, big? Nice. That's awesome. Cool. Wait, Dan, what's the biggest fish? All right, Dan. Dan fishes for bait. That's awesome. <laughs> good, good. Big fish? Anybody catch a big fish? Kind of hear it? Walleye? Nice. <laughs> all right, all right. I don't want to brag. I'm not a great fisherman, but I have fished the waters of great fish. I once caught a fish as big as me. I was nine. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, there it is. Um, so I was five feet tall, and the fish was five feet long. And I was 72 pounds, and the fish was 72 pounds. It was like a two-hour battle to drag that thing up out of 300 feet of water three times. Because a halibut, they come up flat, and they see the light, and they roll over and dive. And you do that until they're exhausted, and you're fishing in about 300 feet of water. Um, and you can see, if you look really close, you can see I'm like, I'm trying to curl this fish up, right? Like 70-pound fish. I'm taking maybe three pounds of weight off this thing, right? My dad's trying to, trying to get it up there with one arm, but, you know, that was a monstrous, that was a monstrous fish. Um, all right, uh, we're going to look at a fish story today, so grab your Bibles. Flip over to Matthew 13. And we're going to look at uh, verses 47, starting at 47 through 52. So we're on, the, we're on the heels of a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of stories here uh, that Jesus is telling. And this one says, again, that's why he says again. He's been trying to get through uh, to these listeners. The kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. 
The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand all these things? Yes, they said, we do. Then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. I think it's funny when he says, you know, do you understand this stuff? And they're like, yeah, we got it. Um, and this has nothing to do with the message, but it reminded me this morning of uh, when I turned 13 and my dad sat me down and I was like, oh boy, here comes the talk. And he says, listen, son, you're turning 13. And what it means is that you're going to go stupid. <laughs> and it wears off when you're 30. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> then we went on with our day. So that's kind of that's how I think of it. They're like, do you understand what I'm telling you about the kingdom of heaven? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got it. Good on you. Way to go. Um, all right. Uh, so each of, these, uh, each of these stories that we looked at, um, he keeps talking about the kingdom of heaven. So if you missed Dan's sermon a few weeks ago, he really kind of unpacked this notion of the kingdom of heaven. And if you missed that, you need to go back and watch that because uh, it's so, so foundational. And especially for church people, like it's easy to kind of miss like the centrality of that part of the message. Like this is what we've got to be, it's what we've got to be based on. So if you missed that, you need to go back and watch it. But I'm going to hit a few high points uh, just to kind of bring us, uh, bring us into this story. Uh, so our family has been reading the New Testament uh, in chronological order. So uh, so if you imagine, like, uh, we're in the Gospels right now, which are, like, the books that chronicle the life of Jesus, right? So we got four of those, and so we get a little bit of, of, a, of Matthew, and then we get the same story over here in Mark, and then we get the same story. Like, it's all, you know, just sort of different takes on these stories, and we're, we're marching through this at dinner every night. Um, since hearing Dan preach, like, the kingdom of heaven, like, suddenly this all reads very, very differently. <laughs> Like, I was one of those people that kind of missed that. Like, it reads very, very differently when you're focused on uh, the kingdom of heaven. So, so Jesus, uh, Matthew 4, Mark 1, John 3, and Luke 4, kind of early in his ministry. And if you want to, like, hit these, like, shoot a picture so you can go back and refer to these. Um, Matthew, he, he starts out, like, this is his inaugural kind of messaging and it's all about the kingdom of heaven. So in, in Matthew 4, 17, he says, uh, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Mark 1, 14, he says, uh, it says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In John 3, 3, Jesus replies, uh, he's in this conversation, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, unless they are born again, which is another kind of churchy phrase um, that, that we can unpack, but I don't have time to today. Um, Luke 4, 43, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. He was sent to proclaim the kingdom of God. And we often get wrapped up into this idea of the good news and the message of Jesus just being about Jesus died for my sins so I could be forgiven, so I could go to heaven when I die. And if we, if we limit this message to that, as awesome as that is, we are missing the big picture altogether, totally missing the boat. 
Okay, so, so we want to be careful that we aren't underestimating God, that we aren't diminishing this reality of what Jesus calls the good news. Now, what's important to catch in that, we, we see it in, in the Matthew Scripture and in the, um, in the Mark Scripture. He uses the word repent. So he doesn't just say, the kingdom of heaven is here. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. So I think in order for us to, to unpack our parable today, um, we've got to talk a little bit about the word repent. Um, repent literally means, who knows what it literally means? You know this? It means like turn around and go the opposite direction. Like I'm walking over here and, and there's like this line, like I turn around and I go in the opposite direction. I always thought it'd be fun to train my dog to respond to the word repent, right? Like, <laughs> like some people use the word leave it. Like that's what Alicia did with our puppy. We got a COVID puppy, Herbie, who's awesome. You should meet Herbie. Um, she taught him leave it. I wanted to teach him repent, right? So like when he goes to chew on something, like repent, and he gets up and leaves. <laughs> I thought that would be super cool, but I'm the only one in the house that thought that would be super cool. Uh, so we didn't do that, but um, someday, someday. It's on my, on my bucket list. Um, turn the opposite way. Turn and go in the opposite way. And, and I think with church people, again, we reduce things. And it's really easy to say, well, repent is about there's this bad thing that I do sometimes, and I, now I'm going to try not to do that anymore, which is, which is not what Jesus is telling us. It's way, 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 way bigger than that. It's not just trying to be a better person. It's way, way, way bigger than that. Uh, so let's see if we can see if we can figure this out. Uh, repent is to take everything you're doing and do it the opposite way. Not just like that one bad thing, but like everything that you understand in terms of, of the values of the kingdom of this world, in terms of what's important, in terms of how relationships work, in terms of your relationship with money, in terms of your relationship with your boss, with your spouse, with your kids, Everything that you learn from the kingdom of this world, turn around and do it the opposite of that. So if you're like a comic book nerd, there was like Bizarro Superman, where you had like Superman and then you had the, this character that was like Superman, but everything the opposite of that, uh, who was not a good guy, right? So we, 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 have, this, uh, we have this dichotomy to, to turn to. Or if you were a Seinfeld fan in the 90s, there was this episode where George is like, I'm going to take everything I do today, and I'm going to do the opposite of what I think I should do. And suddenly his life goes amazing, right? Because <laughs> he's doing everything the opposite of what he thinks. That's what Jesus is telling us. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. He's saying, listen, you got this whole kingdom of man thing going on, this kingdom of you, and you got to take everything about that and turn around and go in the opposite direction, right? It's not just swear less, right? Like you compare the two Swear less is not transformational, right? It's not, um, it's not, I'm gonna be more patient with my kids. That's not transformational. That's good. That's awesome. That could be a, that could be a, 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 a byproduct of your repentance. But your repentance isn't about those things. Your repentance is about orienting your entire self to the kingdom of heaven. You following me? I, did I lose you? Am I, am I with me? Yeah, are we good? Okay, all right, good, good, good. All right, C.S. Lewis writes this. One of the fun things about preaching is I get to like come dig back into like my favorite theologians and authors. He says this uh, from Mere Christianity. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It's something much harder than merely eating humble pie. 
That's a good mid-century term right there, humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. We inherit this thing, right? It means undergoing a kind of death. So repentance is the complete and total renunciation of everything about the kingdom of man and a pledge of complete allegiance to living into the kingdom of heaven. You can't have both, right? I think most of us, most of the time, on our best days are sort of like one foot in the canoe, right? What happens, anybody canoe? What happens if you got one foot in the canoe? It's not going to go well, right? Like, you're in the boat or you're not in the boat. And so, so holding on to those elements of the kingdom of man that are like really, really feel good right now, and, and, and then looking for like, well, there's these other things over here in the kingdom of heaven that make me feel kind of good too. And we're sort of like picking and choosing like this kingdom buffet. It doesn't work. You got to pick. You got to pick. All right. The kingdom of heaven. He goes on uh, and talks about this net, that these fishermen are going to throw this net in the water. And I got to tell you, I started down the road as I'm unpacking this and reading like different theologians take on this thing. It's really, really tempting to take everything in the story and try to make it sort of allegorical and a direct analogy something. And I got to tell you, the net, like everything I came up with or read about in the net, it gets really thin really quick. Uh, so I want to be a little bit careful about that. Um, but here's what we need to know about nets. Uh, anybody ever fish with a net? It's like not legal most places most of the time. So good job not confessing to a felony in, in church. That's awesome. Um, there is, there is one, uh, there's one legal netting season that I'm aware of. Uh, in the interior of Alaska, when the, when the king salmon run, they, they, use, they do dip netting on this one river where you're allowed to take these big like, nets, and it's got like a 14-foot handle on it, and you dip this thing in as the salmon are running, and you dip a king salmon out, right? Now, this is not a little net, and this is not a little fish. So what happens every year is somebody underestimates the swiftness of the current and the strength of the salmon, and they go in the water. Everybody else that's sort of seen this and been there and done that, they tie off. So you like drive a big stake into the ground, you rope off, because when, when like a 70-pound king salmon that is, that is hitting the stream, when that hits your net, like that is brutal. Like that will adjust your back, absolutely. Um, <laughs> But the net that they're talking about is more like a drag net, right? It catches everything, right? So when you throw a net in the water, like, you don't just get this, like, one awesome fish that you wanted to catch. You get everything in the water you're pulling out, right? So um, maybe you've heard of, like, uh, in, like, law enforcement movies, like, the idea of the drag net. Like, there's a crime in an apartment building, so we're going to, like, arrest everybody in the apartment building and interrogate them and search them and go through their apartments. We don't generally do that anymore in this country, um, probably super effective, but we have like constitutions and things, and so there were lawsuits, and we don't do that sort of thing. But the idea, like, we're just going to catch everybody and then sort it out, right? Uh, so, the, so the net catches everything. In the Sea of Galilee, there are three types of fish that you want, okay? So there's, there's the tilapia. Maybe you like tilapia, kind of a good-for-you flavorless whitefish. Um, <laughs> Like it wishes it was halibut, right? <laughs> it's like halibut for the rest of us. Uh, there's sardines, 
I don't know why you would want those, but this was like a staple of, of, of people's diet 2,000 years ago around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and then um, there's this, this fish that I'd never heard of called binny. Uh, sometimes it gets called barbel. It's like a type of catfish, and I guess they're really ugly. Um, but those are the three you want, but, you're, but there are 18 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. So there are three fish that you want and 15 fish you do not want. And then you might also like pull up a boot, right? So maybe in the pulling of this net, Randy might be a boot. I don't know. I don't know how this works. Um, there might be like, you know, 15 lures, or if you're like in an area you've been fishing with Josh Valdez, there might be like 30 fishing flies. You know, it all comes up, it all comes up in the net, right? You get the whole thing. Um, fish snails, the whole, the whole thing. So the net is going to pull in everybody, right? Nobody, nobody, nobody gets to skip that. We're all coming up in the net. Everybody we know is coming up in the net. Anybody who's ever lived is coming up in the net. The net will, will pull us in. And then we get to the crux that most of us are most likely to lay awake at night and worry about. The good fish and the bad fish. This is really like most of the discussion when you have some kind of philosophical or religious debate or conversation with somebody. More often than not, it really comes down to who's the good fish and who's the bad fish, right? This is what we're, this is what we're, what we're most concerned with most of the time. Um, so, if we go, so if we go back, he says, he says there are going to be good fish and bad fish. And he says, and the angels are going to sort the fish. Since there's going to be, remember, remember in the text, there's going to be the wicked, and there's going to be the righteous. That's it, right? There's the wicked, and there's the righteous. Those are our only options. So first, I want to, I want to, I want to look at the word wicked. Um, our culture. Our culture can cause us to understand words in a nuanced way that maybe are no longer reflective of what they used to mean. Does that make sense? Right? So, so looking at the word wicked, um, we might just think it's like really, really bad, right? Villainous, super evil, right? Uh, and we have, uh, we have a little bit of a problem if we do that. The problem is we then are grading good and evil, right? And that's not what the parable tells us. The parable tells us there's the righteous and there's the wicked. That's it. There's not like good people, but they did a few bad things, and then there's you know, this guy, this guy is not a good person, but he makes me laugh, right? You know, if you raise teenagers, your teenagers probably brought home a few friends like that. We're like, not an awesome friend. Like, yeah, but he's funny. Um, so it invites us to legalism. It invites us to moralism. It invites us to put ourselves in the judgment seat of sorting. If we're, if we're going to start thinking about how bad do you have to be to be wicked, Right? There's just wicked, and there's righteous. So when we read wicked in the scripture, um, let me give you a different frame of reference for that word. 
Wicked simply means unrepentant. That's it. It's not the worst of the worst. It's not particularly evil. It's not villainous. It's unrepentant. That's it. It means that that that's someone who lives their life ordered according to this kingdom. As opposed to, Dan, that, the kingdom of heaven, right? That's what it's called, Dan. I teed it up for you. <laughs> the wicked are the people living according to the rules and values of this kingdom, of the kingdom of man, of the kingdom of me, as opposed to the kingdom of heaven. So if you've hung around church, you know where I'm going to have to go with this. We have to talk about sin. See, the, the wicked are living in a world that is ordered around sin. And sin is one of those churchy words that if you're new to church, you're like, I hear that thrown around here, but what does that really mean? Um, and, and really, most of us, even if we grew up around the church, we may throw that word around, but we probably don't have like a really concrete sense of it. So I want to hit that word as well. Um, uh, one, of my, one of my favorite preachers, Andy Stanley, uh, says this uh, for defining sin. He says, any thought, word, or action with har- which harms, steals from, or dishonors someone whom God loves, including you, right? So if you do something that dishonors you or you do something that is harmful to you, that counts, right? So, so anything that you, that you think, that you say, that you do, which harms, steals from, or dishonors Someone whom God loves. That, that's a pretty good one. I took a whack at it myself this week. I said, uh, any, any thoughts, beliefs, or actions which reflect values contrary to the kingdom of heaven? And that makes for a pretty big swath. So too often with sin, we're like, well, there's this thing. Again, we try to like name this thing and say, well, is that thing a sin or is that thing a not a sin? And we have to get a bigger picture of that and consider is this belief, thought, or action reflective of the kingdom of heaven? Nothing we say or do is benign. Everything we say, do, think, believe is reflective of one, one kingdom or the other, right? So we've, we've got to be grounded in that kingdom of heaven. And the consequences of sin, of being aligned with this kingdom, the consequences of sin are... That's it. So, in Genesis 2.17, when God says, don't eat the fruit of this tree. If you do, you are, you are sure to die. Some, some translations, old translations, literally comes out as dying you shall die. Right? So we're talking about both physical death being introduced in the world and spiritual death, separation from God. Dying, you shall die. So um, we're talking about fish today. Have you heard of zombie fish? You ever heard that term? So when, uh, when salmon leave the ocean and they're going to spawn into the interior, uh, so they got to swim like way up to where they came from, hundreds of miles, uh, and then lay their eggs and they die. So those spawning salmon, there's a point at which you don't want to catch them anymore because they are, it's so taxing on them as, they, as they're swimming upstream that, that they begin to die and rot. 
So chunks of rotten flesh. I was going to get a picture, and, but they were disgusting. And I was like, some people here have lunch plans. So, um, so I, I didn't include that. Uh, but, but literally, the, a salmon will, will begin to rot while it's still swimming upstream. And that's us, right? Dying, you shall die. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let's go ahead and flip over to it. Let's read it together. This is a little longer passage. So New Testament, flip past the Gospels, past the Corinthians, you'll find your way there. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, this kingdom. Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, but our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. That one's a little heavy, isn't it? So who are the bad fish? We're all the bad fish until Jesus. Who are the wicked? We're all the wicked until Jesus. So who are the good fish? The righteous, Jesus said. We got the wicked, we got the righteous. So who's righteous? Is it the people that are just good people? Like, there was this thing that I shouldn't do, so I stopped doing that thing. Really? That's it? That's what it takes to be righteous? Let me suggest this. It's those who have oriented their heart and their life completely and totally around the kingdom of heaven and the person of Jesus himself. They've turned their heart. They've purposed themselves to love and follow Jesus. They are those who are repentant. Remember earlier we talked about the complete and total turning away from this kingdom to that kingdom. It's not just like that bad thing that I'm not going to do anymore. And in that, not because we were repentant, in that we are covered by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not that we were good enough in being repentant. It's that Jesus was good enough, and that permeates every aspect of our lives. 
Moving through the parable, we got the good fish and the bad fish. We got the wicked and the righteous. And then we have the sorting. Who does the sorting? Do you do the sorting? Do you want me to do the sorting? We really want to sort, right? I want to sort. I want to look at my kids' friends and do some sorting. You want to date that girl? Let's do some sorting. I am disqualified from the arbitration of other people's redemption. I'm completely disqualified. I am in no way competent to make that decision. What about you? Are you ready to like take a whack at it? No. No. We're quick to offer offer an opinion, but this is way above our pay grade, right? But we're quick. And one of the things that we like to do as we, as we read the Bible and as we study theology, there's a trap where we want to systemize this thing to the point that we get to remove God from that seat of judgment. We, we try to remove God from deciding. So essentially, we're taking like how we want the sorting to be done and sort of imposing that in a systematic roundabout way. We got to be really, really careful about that. Not that we shouldn't study theology. Not that we don't want to know how God is working in this world. All of those things are true, but we got to be really, really careful that there's a line that we cross over and we attempt to put ourselves in the sorting seat. And we've got to be super, super careful about that. All right, we get to the end of this story, and we get this weird little nugget about, about the teachers of the kingdom of heaven, and I want to pull that back up, because it's important, or Jesus might not have said it, I suppose. He says, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Um, this doesn't mean that I get to, like, make stuff up, right? This doesn't mean Brian and Alex get to come up here on Sunday morning and just, like, make stuff up. That's not what we're talking about. Um, so this is, this is what I want you to see that's going on here. The teachers of the law, these are the scribes, Okay? And as you read the Gospels, you'll see that the scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the group of people who were like really, really good at following the rules, and the scribes are the people who, who read the law of God and make up a whole bunch more rules to make sure that you do it right, right? These people are always there. They're always in the background listening. And sometimes they kind of step forward and ask a question or challenge Jesus in some kind of roundabout way. Uh, but they're always there, and they're always listening. So when, when you hear Jesus talk about the scribes, know that there's some scribes there listening, right? He's, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like, you know, me going, oh, there's Josie. I really hope when I get home today that the dishes are done, right? We all know Josie is sitting here listening, right? And Josie's like, all right, I'll do the dishes, right? It feels a little bit passive-aggressive, but it is not. Jesus is, Jesus is challenging these people 
on the spot. So when he says, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, right? So imagine Randy is a scribe here, and I'm like, I come over here and I talk to Alice and Amanda right next to the scribe. Every scribe, every teacher... who becomes a kingdom of heaven, right? At this point, this scribe is, is, is taken in the jaw, right? Like, the suggestion here is that these scribes are merely perverting God's word to be really, really successful in the kingdom of man. They got the wrong kingdom. I feel bad for them. is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. So Jesus was not harsh with the people that were, that were the ones that were beat down. Jesus is always harsh with these scribes because they're the ones that were taking what God gave as a gift and beating these people down with it, Right? And to be fair, we've been known to do the same thing. If we, if we allow our discipleship to get traded for a legalism or a moralism, it's really easy for us to start doing the same thing. We've got to be, we've got to be super careful of that. So, what's the new gem of truth? in the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. I teed up for you the easiest Sunday school answer ever. What is the new gem of truth if you're going to teach the kingdom of heaven? It is Jesus. It is the person of Jesus all day, every day. So, When you read the Gospels, you'll see these scribes come up a lot. And you'll see phrases like, you have heard, but I say. When he says that you have heard, he's standing eight feet from the scribes or the ones that said it, right? Like, this is always directed, like, you have heard, you have heard my law, my stories perverted and twisted to beat you down, but I say, kingdom of heaven. Right? So watch for that, watch for that, watch for that. All right. Here's another new gem of truth from John 13. Now I'm giving you a new commandment. What's the new commandment? Love each other, just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Gems of new truth. All right, so there's our parable. We kind of got the once over. Um, I had a friend, he was the dean of a seminary, and he once said, you know, you should preach about Jesus and preach about 30 minutes, and I am absolutely preaching about Jesus. Um, <laughs> so what do we do? What do we do with this parable? Like, it's, it's cool to go through and pick these parables apart and be like, okay, this means this, and that means that, and this means this, but what do we do with it? Like, you're going to walk out that door in, in about 45 minutes. 
What do we do with it? So let me, let me give you some takeaways, really, really concrete takeaways. One, be repentant. Now, we don't need to live in fear, wondering where we stand with our Heavenly Father. I think that leads us to legalism again. But we have to take our discipleship very, very, very seriously. Brennan Manning, uh, one of my favorite authors, writes this, I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my Heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there is no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he will not condone. I want a relationship with the Abba of Jesus. Abba means father, not 70s band. Who is infinitely compassionate with my brokenness and at the same time an awesome, incomprehensible, and unwieldy mystery. So take your disciple seriously and whatever remnants of the kingdom of man we're still clinging to need to be torn down. We have to address that. Second, number two, be humble. From the Ephesians 2 text, verses 8 and 9, make it very, very, very clear that being transformed from one fish to another fish is not because we were good enough. It's not because I'm a good person. It's not because I did all the right rituals. It's not because... I found all the big sins and didn't do those anymore. It's not because of what I did, because of what Jesus did. We need to be humble in that. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, he's a new fish. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What's the old that has passed away? Kingdom of man. What's new? Kingdom of heaven. It's one or the other. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, transformation is for God's glory, not for ours. So be really, really, really aware of spiritual pride. Third, do you hear the music or is it just me? Just checking? <laughs> just double checking? All right. Third, be compassionate. God's in the business of transforming fish. God doesn't need our help with the sorting, nor has he invited us to in any way participate in the sorting. He's invited us to participate in compassion and transformation. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, I don't know anything about sheep. I can sort of guess at that one. I think it's clear, but he sees the people. He has compassion on them, which means if you are a disciple of Jesus, when you see the crowds of people, what do you have? You have compassion. You do not have judgment. We do not start sorting. We have compassion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. If you don't know Bonhoeffer, you should read some Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II. He writes this from prison. Nothing that we despise in other men is inherently absent from ourselves. 
we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. Be compassionate. And finally, be patient. Why doesn't God stop all this evil is the question that keeps coming up, right? And there's no good answer for somebody in the midst of, of deep, deep pain that's helpful at that point, right? Like, how many times have you sat with somebody that lost a child or has a cancer diagnosis or their house burned down and they're like, why did God let this happen to me? <laughs> it's really hard to come up with a really, really good answer for that in the moment with those people. But here's the reality. The answer is he will. He will. He didn't today. He will. There's a time that's coming and it will be the right time. And we can't see the right time, but this is going to all end. And here's the truth. If it were today, how many of us would be in trouble? How many people you love would be really in trouble? See, when we say, why does God allow this evil? We want to like radiate the evil down to like, oh, the really bad and that's not what Jesus says in this parable. You got righteous and wicked, and righteous is because of Jesus, and wicked is all of us that aren't there yet. So be patient. God's been infinitely patient with us, and right now he's at work, and he's in the business of transforming fish. Let's pray together, and then we'll worship. God, when you called disciples, you said you'd make them fisher of men and then they would sort it out. He would sort it out. We're supposed to bring people. We're supposed to be compassionate and sometimes, God, we're awesome at that and sometimes we're not. And so uh, I just pray today uh, for our community, for our friends uh, online. Um, just to, just to grow us closer. Keep us humble. Keep us focused. Keep us compassionate. Remind us every day what it means to live into your kingdom. Shine a spotlight on, on the things that we, uh, that we believe, the things that we do that are still sort of the, the vestiges of the old kingdom of man that we still hang on to because we got to walk through this world. So God, give us, give us strength in that. Give us compassion at that. Help us, to, uh, help us to see our friends and neighbors, their pain, their need for you. And help us to be uh, your kingdom people as we go through this life. Amen. <laughs>